you could turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 3, 1 through 4. We will be reading from the English Standard Version. Zechariah 3, 1 through 4. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to, to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garment, garments from him. And to him and to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. The word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would honor the very reading of that. Your word alone can cut open our hearts and our minds, pierce us with your truth. And I pray that you would do that. I pray that we would leave much different than the way we walked into this place with a greater understanding of you, a greater affection for you, greater understanding of the gospel. Spirit, I pray that you would teach. I ask that my words would fall to the ground and that they would blow away and no one would remember them, Lord, but your words would remain and change us. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Some of you might have noticed we, we have departed from 1 Corinthians briefly. And uh, I sent an email out about why. What we're going to be doing over the next year is the last Sunday of every month, we are going to part from whatever series we're in the midst of. And we're going to take a, a fresh look at the cross from different passages. Some of the passages, passages will be in the Old Testament. Some will be look at Jesus' sayings from the cross. Um, but once a month, the last Sunday of every month, we're going to part from whatever series we're doing, and we're going to try to take a fresh look at the gospel and the cross. And so that's what we're going to do tonight with, with a somewhat obscure passage from Zechariah 3. And the, the reason I know it's obscure is because when Brian said, turn to Zechariah 3, everybody's flipping around like crazy trying to find Zechariah. Um, and then you finally found it probably when we were done. Um, uh, last year, A.J. Jacobs, some of you might have read this article that he wrote. He's an editor-at-large for Esquire magazine. And he decided that he was going to obey every rule in the Bible for an entire year. Every rule for an entire year. And so what he did is he had with him a stapled list of 700 of the rules and prohibitions in the Bible. And he took it around with him everywhere. And uh, this list included things like don't wear clothes of mixed fibers, grow your beard, stone adulterers. Um, it was, uh, the, the stoning adulterers is, is really quite funny because, you know, he doesn't want to kill anybody. But he wants to obey the commandment. And so it actually says that he picked up a lot of little pebbles and he used to follow behind people and he would like throw them at their feet. And uh, then he just felt kind of wimpy. And, and so he was sitting in a park bench, I think in uh, New York. And a guy sat next to him and said, you're dressed uh, kind of queer, actually, um, because he was dressed really unusual, keeping this, uh, the law. 
He says, why are you dressed like that? He goes, actually, I'm trying to obey every verse or every commandment in the Bible, and I'm trying to figure out how I could stone adulterers. The guy goes, well, I'm an adulterer. Are you going to stone me? And he goes, well, actually, I would just use these little pebbles right here. And immediately the man grabbed him and threw them all at him. But he said he still, he picked up some, and that's the man he got to stone. He threw it at him as the man was leaving. And so he checked it off his list, stoned an adulterer. And, uh, and so he, he, he tried to obey all of them, all of the laws. He had especially a hard time with the purity laws. Um, people mocked him for doing this. Um, they, they really mocked him a whole lot because most people, they see the Bible as a set of ridiculous rules. Ridiculous rules. Um, some rules might be understandable. Maybe some people even agree, yes, you should punish an adulterer. We, we understand that. But most of the rules in the Bible we see as silly and pretty primitive. Um, have you ever tried reading through Leviticus? I mean, have you ever tried reading through and you get, you know, into the pus chapters and the white hair chapters and the what you can touch, what you cannot? You can't eat an eagle, you can't eat a hawk, you can't eat all these different birds. You can eat all the insects except for these four. And it goes on and on and on. All of these things that if you touch or if you eat that will make you unclean. And to be unclean means that you cannot stand in the presence of God. You cannot go to worship God if you're unclean. Now, A.J. Jacobs, he found all of these purity rules to be impossible to keep. He was constantly washing his clothes, dipping his bed in water. He was, he was doing all of these things, and finally he was just avoiding contact with everyone, because if you touch someone who's unclean, you're unclean. And he didn't know what to do with all these purity laws. You know, what is the point of all of these? If you ask Christians, what is the point of all the purity laws? If you ask 10 Christians, you'll get 10 different answers. Most people don't know what to do with them. And I've heard a number of people point to those things and say, you know what, the Bible is irrelevant. It's actually somewhat silly. It's a bunch of superstitious beliefs by some superstitious people. Certainly we've evolved since then in the last 2,000 years or the last 4,000 years. Certainly we've evolved And even if one does believe in God and takes the Bible somewhat seriously, they will still think, you know what? Little washings are not going to make me presentable before God. They're not going to allow me to come and worship God. Well, actually, looking at the purity laws, which we're going to look at, is not as archaic as you might think. It's really not as archaic as you might think. Um... If any of you have ever fasted, if you've ever fasted, what you are doing is you're doing something physical, hoping that something spiritual happens to you. Physically, you're saying, I'm not going to have any food. Why? I'm hoping to produce not a physical hunger, but a spiritual hunger. And so you do something physical, hoping that something spiritual would happen, something external, hoping that there will be an internal change. That's what the purity laws were about. You're doing something external, hoping that there's going to be this internal. You wash your hands, hoping that there'll be a true washing of your spirit. The Israelites, they knew that washing your hands didn't make you clean, but they they hoped by, by taking the time to do this, they would reflect that it would change their hearts. And we do physical things all the time to bring about inward change. Um, if you're going to a job interview, 
You know, you take great time, you brush your hair, you brush your teeth, you iron all your clothes, you put on clean underwear, which the boss is never going to see, and you do all this. Why? You're, in a sense, getting rid of uncleanliness. You're going to meet somebody who's very important. The Israelites did the same thing. They went to great lengths with all these purity laws. Why? Because they were meeting the king of kings. They wanted to give a great impression. We do things like we bow down in worship. We, we're in prayer. Why? It's a physical act, but we're hoping it changes us inwardly. We're hoping it does something like that to us. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Jesus talks a little bit about these purity laws, which we need to understand if we're going to understand Zechariah 3. Mark 7, verse 18. And Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters from not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Here Jesus, he's responding to the Pharisees who are arguing over the fact that the disciples aren't washing their hands. They're not washing their hands, and they're saying your disciples are impure. And Jesus responds by saying, don't you know, they're not unclean because they don't wash their hands. You know, what you put in your mouth goes out into the latrine. He's very graphic. It never touches the heart. It never touches the heart. You can never work from an outside source for an internal change, is what Jesus is saying. It won't happen. Now notice that Jesus, he disagrees with the Pharisees about what makes you unclean. But he says, you are absolutely right. You are unclean. My disciples are unclean. You're wrong about what causes them to be unclean. It's not about what they eat. What's wrong is the heart. It's from within. There's uncleanliness in here. It doesn't come from an outside source. It comes from within. And what he's saying is, if you want to change it, you got to change in here. Nothing outwardly is going to change your heart. Everyone's unclean. No one can approach God in worship. And, And I think that all of us believe that. I think every heart believes that. We understand that we don't measure up to God's standard. I think whether you're a Christian or not, you feel that inadequacy. You, you sense your uncleanliness. If, if you were to go home right now and you were to find in your mailbox a note, you were to open it up and the note were to say, I know what you did and I'm telling I know what you did and I'm telling. Almost every one of you would have, every one of you would have fear. You'd be thinking, now what could they know? What could they know? And you would start racking your brain and you'd be thinking like, oh man, I hope it's not that. (laughs) I hope it's not that. Whoa, I thought nobody saw me do that. And, And you would be thinking, but all of you would immediately know you're guilty. There is something that is there. There is something that you are ashamed of. 
There's something that you, you are scared that other people might know about you. And, and I don't care if you're a moral relativist or if, or if you have a fixed morality on the word of God. It doesn't matter. If you believe that what's right for you is right for you and what's right for me is right for, for me, you still would be scared if you got that note. Because you know you have failed your own moral standard. Apart from God, you failed your own moral standard. That's why thieves get mad when people rob from them. That's why liars are angry if people lie to them. Even if, even if they don't believe in God, they have a sense of moral code and they know when it's been violated and they know they have fallen short of their own moral standard just like we all have. And so we're scared. We know we're unclean. And the thought of that being projected to others terrifies us. I don't think anybody would get a note like that and think, I'm safe. I've done nothing wrong. Nothing I'm ashamed of. There was a recent study last year um, that ran in a couple of national papers. Maybe you guys read it. It was in the Birmingham News. It also appeared in the Journal of Science. This um, behavioral researcher named Chen Bo Zong. He's at the University of Toronto, and he wrote about the Macbeth effect. The Macbeth effect. And uh, in one of several experiments with Northwestern students, and this is fascinating, the, the researchers, they gave one group of students, they, they told them they had to recall, they had to remember an unethical thing they had done in the past. They had to just sit there and they had to remember an unethical thing in the past. Like betraying a friend. Um, then another group over here, they had to reflect on an ethical deed they had done, maybe giving some money to a poor person. At the end of the study, they could get a free gift. And they were just sitting there at the table. Not a big gift. One was a pencil, and one was a little um, cleaning pad. You know, the, what are those things? Little wipes. Well, the people who thought of the unethical deed were twice as likely to pick up the wipes. They felt unclean. And they would go and they would wash. Um, and they called this the Macbeth effect, that we want to do something to, to cleanse our soul. Psychologists have known for years that when people betray their values, they need to compensate. You've got to do something to compensate. Christians who have read a blasphemous story about Jesus, you know what they compensate? They see a horrible movie. They compensate by saying, I'm going to church on Sunday. Compensate. Wash my soul. Get the stain off. Uh, social liberals who feel that they have maybe discriminated against some person, they'll go out of their way to make sure that, that they, they maybe volunteer for a civil rights cause or they do something to compensate. And this is what this study noticed, that people have to somehow reestablish their moral order. They call this moral cleansing. Dr. Philip Tetlock says people have to repair their moral identity. Now, this shows in a lot of other things that we are not so much different than the people that Jesus was addressing 2,000 years ago. Um, we still want to do something external to make us clean internal. And you see this all the time. Sometimes it's not as obvious as washing your hands it can be something as subtle as, well, you're going to spend all your time in work 
trying to rise up the corporate ladder so somebody will say, you know what? You really are of value. You're really not unclean. You really do measure up. Maybe it's you spend a whole lot of time on your appearance. You're always in front of the mirror doing something because you want to be without spot or blemish. Because it's, if people praise your appearance, then you know, all right, I'm not unclean. I'm not unclean. Probably the, the thing most of us in here do is we attempt to be very religious to get rid of our uncleanliness. We become very religious. We go to church every Sunday. We say we're going to turn over a new leaf. We're going to give our money away. We're going to read our Bibles. And at the end of the day, we've totally exhausted ourselves. But you know what? This radical self-centeredness of your heart is unchanged. You've done all of these externals. And you've exhausted yourself. And you're unchanged. And we looked at this summer that people can be religious and they could be irreligious for the exact same reasons. You can pursue power in religion or through irreligion. You can try to cancel out the fears that you have in, in your life by being really religious or being really irreligious. But your heart's never changed. You can't go from an outside in. That's what this passage in Zechariah 3 is about. Zechariah is given this vision of a, the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. That is the Lord. Anytime you have the angel of the Lord standing before the presence of the Lord. That can only happen one day. The day of atonement. Only one day could the high priest ever go before the Lord into the most holy of holies. And it was on Yom Kippur, the, the day of atonement. The temple had three Three courts it had the outer court, it had the inner court, and then it had the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, where the mercy seat was kept, which was the throne of God. One day a year, Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter, God would meet him there. And the, the Lord would remove sins, he would postpone judgment. And Dr. Albert Edersheim. He's a Jewish scholar, and he writes a lot about this Day of Atonement. And he said that this day took enormous preparation to be clean. Enormous. The week before, the high priest would seclude himself. He, he, he would go into his home. He had a home in the temple, and he would go in there, and he would be in total isolation. And because he didn't want to make the mistake of accidentally touching somebody who was unclean, accidentally eating something that was unclean, all his food would be brought to him and it was specially prepared all week long. He would practice the sacrifices he was to make. He would practice verbatim all the prayers that he would have to pray. He would do things like know which direction each sacrifice had to face, which way you were to sprinkle blood. Was it once downward and seven upwards? I mean, it, it is very, very detailed. He would practice all that. He could not make a mistake. Things had to be perfect. Absolutely perfect. And there was a lot to remember. And he had to take an oath saying he would not deviate from the slightest word. The service would begin at the first streak of morning light. And the entire night before, this high priest had spent in fasting and in prayer he would not sleep, waiting for the morning light. 
trying to cleanse his soul. And at daybreak, the sacrifices would start. On the Day of Atonement, there was actually 15 sacrifices. Twelve of the normal sacrifices, three sacrifices for atonement. And by daybreak, the whole temple would be packed. And the whole outer courts packed. All surrounding the temple packed. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people there to see their representative go before God. They would cheer him on. They would pray for him. Praying out loud that God would honor the the, the sacrifice that he makes, that he would accept it. That he would forgive them. There would be 500 specially chosen priests that would be there on the periphery to assist. If anything happened to go wrong, they could assist. But it was the high priest's job to do all the sacrifices himself. He would wear his priestly clothes, which had a lot of gold on it. And he would do that every time he would offer one of those normal sacrifices, one of the normal 12. And after every sacrifice, he'd have to wash his hands, he'd have to wash his feet, and he'd have to take off his clothes, and he'd have to put on new clothes. Then he'd make a sacrifice, then he would wash his hands, wash his feet, take off his clothes, put on new clothes. He would do that over and over and over. But when it came time for him to make the sacrifices of atonement, there was a much higher step of cleanliness. He would strip down completely naked in front of everyone. All the people around. They they had a little screen, this this see-through cloth to give them just a teeny bit of privacy, but everybody was invested in what this man was doing. And he would take a complete bath. He would get up, and this time he would put on just robes of white linen. Nothing else. Pure white. Then he would go into the Holy of Holies in this thick veil. He'd walk in, close it behind him, total darkness. Maybe a little bit of the red embers there. And he would throw the incense on it and smoke would fill the room probably for his protection so he couldn't see. And so he could suffocating in there. (laughs) Hard to breathe. There's no light. And he would make his sacrifice for his sin. He would walk out take off all of his clothes, get a full bath in front of everyone again. Get up, put on white linen, go in, this time offer sacrifices for the priest. Then he would go out, take off all of his clothes again, take a bath in front of everyone. By the end, he had washed 12 times and he had taken three full baths. And he would put on his white linen and he would go in again, this time making atonement for all of the people. And that's the scene that you see here in Zechariah 3. Zechariah is seeing this vision of Joshua, the high priest, his high priest, before the Lord. Look at verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. He had these filthy garments on. The the word for filthy there is actually excrement. Uh, Zechariah had to be absolutely stunned, horrified when he sees this vision. It's not possible. This is the most clean man in all of Israel. 
He's bathed all these times. He's made all these sacrifices, all of this. He's finally standing before the Lord, and the Lord looks at him, and he's covered with excrement. The guy shouldn't have a speck of dust. He shouldn't have a germ on him. And here he is, smeared all over with that. And what Ray Dillard, a former professor at Westminster, he preached a sermon on this. He says, what the Lord is doing is allowing you to see things as he sees them here. Here is the most outwardly clean man in all of Israel standing before him, and this is what his righteousness looks like. Excrement. Had to be horrifying. But then something shocking happens, which we just read in verse 4. After Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord with filthy garments, then the angel said to those standing before him, remove the filthy garments. Remove them. And, and, and if you go down, go down to verse 8. It says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In a single day. Now the one thing that Zechariah knows is you cannot remove sin. You can't do it. The best you could do is come year after year after year and make all these sacrifices and postpone judgment, but you've got to keep coming. You can never have it just wiped out. And here the Lord says, my servant, the branch is coming. It will all be gone in a single day. This happens, happened through Jesus. Uh, did you know that Jesus and Joshua are the exact same word? In Aramaic... Hebrew, and Greek. Yeshua. So you have your high priest Joshua here covered in excrement, and then we have Jesus, our high priest, who comes and who takes it away. Who takes it away. Hebrews 10 says that while priests offer daily sacrifices that can never take away sin, Jesus offered for one time a single sacrifice for sins. Jesus, like the high priest, the week before he went to give his sacrifice with his own body, that week was a week of preparation for him. The very night before he was to give that sacrifice, he spent the entire night up in prayer, purifying, getting ready for the next day. The exact same things that the high priest would do. But, but it's out there that the comparison ends because Jesus didn't have crowds of friends around the temple cheering him on, saying, go Jesus, yes, Jesus had none of that. His friends betrayed him. His friends left him, deserted him. Jesus went all alone. Jesus didn't have his fine linen there. He was stripped of all of his clothing, naked on the cross. Jesus didn't take a bath. Instead, he was showered with spit as people would spit on him and spit on him as he went to the cross. And Jesus did not receive the acceptance of his heavenly Father there. He was utterly forsaken. Forsaken. 2 Corinthians 5 says that he who knew no sin 
was made to be sin. Was made to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. You know, I don't have time to go into this, but every other religion is outside in. These are the things you do. These are the things you do. And that will change you from within. Christianity says, no, it is nothing you can't ever, it's not outside in. It's about what one person has done. And he has paid it. And he has changed your heart. I tell you, I have a little five-year-old girl, Caroline, and this is so hard to communicate to her. Um, and that night when I'm tucking her in bed, she can go off for an hour on this. Daddy, what all must I do? Do I have to do everything right to get to heaven? No, Caroline, you don't have to. You don't have to do everything. All right, tell me all the things I have to do. Tell me exactly what I have to do. You know, do, do, do I have to do them all? I'm like, well, what? it's not about what you do, Caroline. It's about what Jesus has done. Okay, so, so you're saying I don't have to do any of those things. I, I can, you know, or do I have to do most of those things? Caroline, it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. Okay, so... So what you're saying is like, is, is there 10 things that I need to do? I'm not kidding. And this will go on. You know why? We're not wired to understand grace. We are wired outside in. What do I do? Tell me what I do. What performance thing can I do? And you can never work from outside in. Christ has got to change your heart. I love it in Mark 7. There's a little parenthetical note there that we, we read. It says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. He declared it. Whenever Mark has a little parenthetical note, you should start, highlight it. It's like a billboard because Mark never includes details. And here it is. Jesus thus declared all foods clean. And what he didn't say is, okay, the Old Testament was wrong. We've evolved. You know, now we're moving on to bigger. And he doesn't say that. He acknowledges the old purity laws were right, but now things are different. You know why? Because all of those laws pointed to me. I am the fulfillment of all of them. You don't have to do anything anymore. I will do it all. Think of the purity laws as John the Baptist. They simply prepared the way for the Lord and they point to him. And then when he comes, there's no need for them. He's the fulfillment of it. This brings us to this table. I love a passage that comes in Revelation 19. It says that when Christ returns again and is described as a great wedding, do you know what we're going to be dressed in? Linens of pure white. Don't you love that? Linen of pure white. And let me tell you, it's not going to be because of anything you have done. But it's because of Christ who became sin on your behalf. And that's what we're going to celebrate here at the, the Lord's table. Um, the Lord, the night before He was betrayed, He had a special meal with His disciples, the ones who would later forsake Him that very evening, um, in which He took very ordinary elements. He took bread and He got bread and He broke it. And He said, this is my body broken for you. And then He got the wine and said this is the wine of the new covenant that is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. He 
He said, take, eat, this is my body. And he said, drink, this is my blood. And so that's what we're going to do tonight in remembrance of his sacrifice to make us white before him. And this table is is open for all those who have um, professed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who trust in his merits alone. I love the line that we just sang in our last song, the best obedience of my hands. Think of Joshua the high priest. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before thy throne. But faith can enter thy demands by pleading what thy son has done. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your broken body and we thank you for your blood. Forgive us for all the ways that we try to work outside in to change our hearts. What that means is we don't believe the gospel. We confess we are wired that way. We are so performance oriented. I pray we would let that go and we would cling to the merits of your son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.